Hello, and welcome to Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, the podcast. Written by Eliezer Yudkowsky, read by Inyash Brodsky, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Second part of Chapter 86, Multiple Hypothesis Testing. The frustrating thing about this conversation was that Harry couldn't say his actual reasons for disagreeing, which violated several basic principles of cooperative discourse. He couldn't explain how Bellatrix had really been removed from Azkaban, not by you-know-who in any guise, but by the combined wits of Harry and Professor Quirrell. Harry didn't want to say in front of Professor McGonagall that the existence of brain damage implied that there was no such thing as souls which made a successful immortality ritual, well, not impossible? Harry certainly intended to forge a road to magical immortality someday, but it would be a lot harder and require much more ingenuity than just binding an already existent soul to a lich's phylactery, which no intelligent wizard would bother doing in the first place if they knew their souls were immortal. And the true and honest reason Harry knew the Dark Lord couldn't have been that smart. Well, there wasn't any tactful way to say it, but... Harry had been to a convocation of the Wizengamot. He'd seen the laughable security precautions, if you could call them that, guarding the deepest levels of the Ministry of Magic. They didn't even have the thief's downfall, which goblins used to wash away polyjuice and imperious curses on people entering Gringotts. The obvious takeover route would be to imperious the Minister of Magic and a few department heads, and owl a hand grenade to anyone too powerful to imperious. Or owl them knockout gas if you needed them alive and in a state of living death to take hairs for polyjuice potions. Legilimency, false memories, the confundus charm, it was ridiculous. The magical world was super-saturated with ways to cheat. Harry might not do any of those things himself during his own takeover of Britain since he was constrained by ethics. Well, Harry might do some of the lesser ones, since Polyjuice or a temporary Confundus or read-only legilimency all sounded better than an extra day of Azkaban. But... If Harry hadn't been constrained by ethics... It was possible he could have wiped out the eviler sections of the Wizengamot that day, all by himself, using only a first year's magical power, on account of being clever enough to figure out Dementors. Though Harry might not have been in such a great political position after that, the surviving Wizengamot members might have found it easy and cheap to disavow his actions for PR purposes and condemn him, even if the smarter ones realized it was for the greater good. But still, if you were completely unconstrained by ethics, armed with the ancient secrets of Salazar Slytherin, had dozens of powerful followers including Lucius Malfoy, and it took you more than ten years to fail to overthrow the government of Magical Britain, it meant you were stupid. How can I put this? Harry said. Look, Headmaster, you've got ethics. There's a lot of battle tactics you don't use because you're not evil. And you fought the Dark Lord, a tremendously powerful wizard who wasn't so restrained. And you held him off anyway. If you-know-who had been super smart on top of that, you'd be dead. All of you. You'd have died instantly. Harry. Professor McGonagall said. Her voice was faltering. Harry, we almost did all die. 
More than half the Order of the Phoenix died. If not for Albus, Albus Dumbledore, the greatest wizard in two centuries, Harry, we surely would have perished. Harry passed a hand over his forehead. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to minimize what you went through. I know that you know who was a completely evil, incredibly powerful dark wizard with dozens of powerful followers. And that's bad, yes, definitely bad. It's just... All that isn't on remotely the same threat scale as the enemy being smart, in which case they transfigure botulism toxin and sneak a millionth of a gram into your teacup. Was there any safe way to convey that concept without citing specifics? Harry couldn't think of one. Please, Harry. Please, Harry, I beg you. Take the Dark Lord seriously. He is more dangerous than... The senior witch seemed to be having trouble finding words. He is far more dangerous than transfiguration. Harry's eyebrows went up before he could stop himself. A dark chuckle came from Severus Snape's direction. Um, said the voice of Ravenclaw within him. Um, honestly, Professor McGonagall is right. We're not taking this as seriously as we'd take a scientific problem. The difficult thing is to react at all to new information instead of just flushing it out the window. Right now, it looks like we didn't shift belief at all after encountering an unexpected, important argument. Our dismissal of Lord Voldemort as a serious threat was originally based on the Dark Mark being blatantly stupid. It would require a focused effort to de-update and suspect the whole garden path of reasoning we went down based on that false assumption. And we're not putting in that effort right now. All right, Harry said, just as Professor McGonagall seemed to be about to speak again. All right, to take this seriously, I need to stop and think for five minutes. Please do, said Albus Dumbledore. Harry closed his eyes. His Ravenclaw side divided into three. Probability estimate, said Ravenclaw 1, who was acting as moderator, that the Dark Lord is alive and as smart as we are, and hence a genuine threat. Why aren't all his enemies already dead? said Ravenclaw 2, who was prosecuting. Note, said Ravenclaw 1, we had already thought of that argument, so we can't use it to shift belief again each time we rehearse it. But what's the actual flaw in the logic? In worlds with a smart Lord Voldemort, everyone in the Order of the Phoenix died in the first five minutes of the war. The world doesn't look like that, so we don't live in that world. QED. Is that really certain? Asked Ravenclaw 3, who'd been appointed as the defender. Maybe there was some reason Lord Voldemort wasn't fighting all out back then. Like what? Furthermore, whatever your excuse, I demand that the probability of your hypothesis be penalized in accordance with its added complexity. Let three talk. Okay, look. First of all, we don't know that anyone can take over the ministry just with mind control. Maybe Magical Britain is really an oligarchy and you need enough military power to intimidate the family heads into submission. Imperious them too. And the oligarchs have thieves' downfall in the entrances to their homes. Complexity penalty. More epicycles. Oh, be reasonable. We haven't actually seen anyone take over the ministry with a couple of well-placed Imperious curses. We don't know that it can actually be done that easily. 
But even taking that into account, it really seems like there should have been some other way. Ten years of failure, really? Using only conventional terrorist tactics? That's just not even trying. Maybe Lord Voldemort did have more creative ideas, but he didn't want to tip his hand to other countries' governments. Didn't want them to know how vulnerable they were and install Thief's downfall in their ministries. Not until he had Britain as a base and enough servants to subvert all the other major governments simultaneously. You're assuming he wants to conquer the world. Trelawney prophesied that he would be our equal. Therefore, he wanted to take over the world. And if he is your equal, and you do have to fight him... For an instant, Harry's mind tried to imagine the specter of two creative wizards fighting an all-out war against each other. Harry had noted all the charms and potions in his first-year books that could be creatively used to kill people. He hadn't been able to help himself. Literally. He'd tried to stop his brain from doing it each time, but it was like looking at a fish and trying to stop your brain from noticing it was a fish. What someone could creatively do with 7th year, or Auror level, or ancient lost magic such as Lord Voldemort had possessed, didn't bear thinking about. A magically superpowered creative genius psychopath wasn't a threat, it was an extinction event. Then Harry shook his head, dismissing the gloomy line his reasoning had been going down. The question was whether there was a significant probability of facing anything so terrible as a dark rationalist in the first place. Prior odds that someone attempting an immortality ritual would actually have it work. Call it one to a thousand at a generous overestimate. It was not the case that roughly one wizard in a thousand survived their death. Though admittedly, Harry didn't have any data on how many had attempted immortality rituals first. What if the Dark Lord is as smart as us? Said Ravenclaw Three. You know, the way Trelawney prophesied him being our equal. Then he would make his immortality ritual work. P.S. Don't forget that destroy all but a remnant of the other line. Requiring that level of intelligence was an additional burdensome detail. Prior odds of a random population member being that intelligent were low. But Lord Voldemort wasn't a randomly selected wizard. He was one particular wizard in the population who'd come to everyone's attention. The puzzle of the mark implied a certain minimum level of intelligence, even if, hypothetically, the Dark Lord had taken longer to think it through. Then again, in the Muggle world, all the extremely intelligent people Harry knew about from history had not become evil dictators or terrorists. The closest thing to that in the Muggle world was hedge fund managers, and none of them had tried to take over so much as a third world country, a point which put upper bounds on both their possible evil and possible goodness. There were hypotheses where the Dark Lord was smart and the Order of the Phoenix didn't just instantly die but those hypotheses were more complicated and ought to get complexity penalties. After the complexity penalties of the further excuses were factored in, there would be a large likelihood ratio from the hypotheses the Dark Lord is smart versus the Dark Lord was stupid to the observation the Dark Lord did not instantly win the war. That was probably worth a 10 to 1 likelihood ratio in favor of the Dark Lord being stupid, but maybe not 100 to 1. 
you couldn't actually say that the Dark Lord instantly wins had a probability of more than 99%, assuming the Dark Lord started out smart. The sum over all possible excuses would be more than 0 0.01. And then there was the prophecy, which might or might not have originally included a line about how Lord Voldemort would immediately die if he confronted the Potters which Albus Dumbledore had then edited in Professor McGonagall's memory in order to lure Lord Voldemort to his doom. If there was no such line, the prophecy did sound somewhat like you-know-who and the boy who lived were destined to have some later confrontation. But in that case, it was less likely that Dumbledore would have come up with a plausible-sounding excuse not to take Harry to the Hall of Prophecy. Harry was wondering if he could even get a Bayesian calculation out of this. Of course, the point of a subjective Bayesian calculation wasn't that, after you made up a bunch of numbers, multiplying them out would give you an exactly right answer. The real point was that the process of making up numbers would force you to tally all the relevant facts and weigh all the relative probabilities. Like realizing, as soon as you actually thought about the possibility of the dark mark not fading, if you know who was dead, that the probability wasn't low enough for the observation to count as strong evidence. One version of the process was to tally hypotheses and list out evidence, make up all the numbers, do the calculation, and then throw out the final answer and go with your brain's gut feelings after you'd forced it to really weigh everything. The trouble was that the items of evidence weren't conditionally independent, and there were multiple interacting background facts of interest. Well, one thing at least was certain. If the calculation could be done at all, it was going to take a piece of paper and a pencil. In the fireplace at one side of the headmaster's office, the flames suddenly flared up, turning from orange to bright bilious green. Ah! said Professor McGonagall into the uncomfortable non-silence. That would be Mad-Eye Moody, I suppose. Let this matter bide for now, the headmaster said in some relief, as he too turned to regard the flu. I believe we are about to receive some news regarding it as well. Hypothesis. Hermione Granger. April 8th, 1992, 6.53 p.m. Meanwhile, in the Great Hall of Hogwarts, as the students who didn't have secret meetings with the headmaster bustled about their dinner around four huge tables... That's funny. Dean Thomas said thoughtfully. I didn't believe the general when he said that what we learned would change us forever, and we'd never be able to return to a normal life afterward, once we knew, once we saw what he could see. I know, said Seamus Finnegan. I thought it was just a joke too, like, you know, everything else General Chaos ever said, ever. But now, Dean said sadly, We can't go back, can we? It'd be just like going to a muggle school after having been to Hogwarts. We've just, we've just got to stay around each other. That's all we can do, or we'll go crazy. Seamus Finnegan, next to him, just nodded wordlessly and ate another bite of Veldbeast. Around them, the conversations at the Gryffindor table continued. It wasn't as relentless as it had been yesterday, but now and then the topic wandered back. Well, there must have been some sort of love triangle, said a second-year witch named Samantha Crowley. 
She never answered when asked if there was any relation. The question is, which ways was it going before it all went wrong? Who was in love with who? And whether or not that person loved them back? I don't know how many possibilities there are. 64, said Sarah Variabil, a blossoming beauty who probably should have been sorted into Ravenclaw or Hufflepuff instead. No, wait, that's wrong. I mean, if nobody loved Malfoy and Malfoy didn't love anyone, then he wouldn't really be a part of the love triangle. This is going to take arithmetic. Could you all wait two minutes? I, for one, think it perfectly clear that Granger is Potter's Moirail, and that Potter was auspiced to sing between Malfoy and Granger. The witch who'd spoken nodded with the self-satisfaction of someone who has just precisely nailed down a complicated issue. Those aren't even words, objected a young wizard. You're just making them up as you go. Sometimes you can't describe a thing using real words. It's so sad, said Charisse Nixarin, who actually had tears in her eyes. They, they were just, they were just so obviously meant to be together. You mean Potter and Malfoy? Said a second-year witch named Colleen Johnson. I know their families hate each other so much, there's no way they couldn't fall in love. No, I mean all three of them. This produced a brief pause in the huddled conversation. Dean Thomas was quietly choking on his lemonade, trying not to make any sounds as it trickled out of his mouth and soaked into a shirt. Wow, said a dark-haired witch by the name of Nancy Howe. That's really sophisticated of you, Charisse. Look, you all, we need to keep this realistic, said Elois Rosen, a tall witch who'd been general of an army and hence spoke with an air of authority. We know, because she kissed him, that Granger was in love with Potter. So the only reason she tried to kill Malfoy is if she knew she was losing Potter to him. There's no need to make it all sound so complicated. You're all acting like this is a play instead of real life. But even if Granger was in love, it's still funny that she just snapped like that, said Chloe, whose black robes combined with her night black skin to make her look like a darkened silhouette. I don't know. I think maybe there's more to this than just a romance novel gone wrong. I think maybe most people haven't got any idea at all what's going on. Yes, thank you, burst out Dean Thomas. Look, don't you realize, like Harry Potter told us, if you didn't predict that something would happen, if it took you completely by surprise, then what you believed about the world when you didn't see it coming isn't enough to explain... Dean's voice trailed off as he saw that nobody was listening. It's completely hopeless, isn't it? You hadn't figured that out yet? Said Lavender Brown, who was sitting across the table from her two fellow former chaotics. How'd you ever make lieutenant? Oh, you two be quiet! Cherie snapped at them. It's obvious you both want the three of them for yourselves. I mean it, Chloe said. What if what's really going on is different from all the, you know, normal things that all the ordinary people are talking about? What if somebody made Granger do what she did, just like Potter was trying to tell everyone? I think Chloe's right said a foreign-looking boy wizard who always introduced himself as Adrian Turnipseed, though his parents had actually named him Mad Drongo. I think this whole time there has been a hidden hand shaping all that has happened. One person who is behind everything from the beginning. And I don't mean Professor Snape either. You don't mean... gasped Sarah. Yes, the real one behind it all is Gracie Davis. That's what I think too, 
Chloe said. After all, she glanced around rapidly. Ever since that thing with the bullies and the ceiling, even the trees in the forest around Hogwarts look like they're shaking, like they're afraid. Seamus Finnegan was frowning thoughtfully. I think I can see where Harry gets his, you know, from. Seamus said, lowering his voice so that only Lavender and Dean could hear. Oh, I totally know what you mean. Lavender said. She didn't bother to lower her own voice. It's a wonder he didn't crack and just start killing everyone ages ago. Personally, Dean said, also in a quieter voice. I'd say the scary part is that could have been us. Yeah, it's a good thing we're all perfectly sane now. Dean and Seamus nodded solemnly. Hypothesis G L, April eighth, nineteen ninety two, eight o eight p.m. The flue fire in the headmaster's office blazed a bright pale green. The fire concentrating in on itself into a spinning emeraldine whirlwind, and then flared even brighter and spit a human figure into the air. There was a blur of motion as the resolving figure snapped up a wand, smoothly spinning with the flu's momentum like a ballet dance step, so that his firing arc covered the entire 360-degree arc of the room. And then, just as abruptly, the figure stopped in place. In the first instant that Harry saw that man, before Harry even took in the eye, he noticed the scars on the hands, the scars on the face, like the man had been burned and cut over his entire body. Though only the man's hands and face were visible of all his flesh, the rest of the man's body was hidden, encased not in robes but in leather that looked more like armor than clothing—dark gray leather matching the man's mess of grayed hair. The next thing that Harry's vision comprehended was the brilliant blue eye occupying the right side of the man's face. One part of Harry's mind realized that the person whom Professor McGonagall had named Mad-Eye Moody was the same as the one Dumbledore had called Alistair within the memory Dumbledore had shown Harry—an image from before whatever event had scarred every inch of the man's body and taken a chunk out of his nose. And another part of his mind noticed the jolt of adrenaline. Harry had drawn his wand in sheer reflex when the man had spun out of the flue like that. There'd been something about it that felt like ambush. Harry's hand had already started to level his wand for a somnium before he'd managed to stop himself. Even now, the armored man was holding his wand level, not pointed at any particular person, but covering the whole room. And that wand was already in perfect line with his eyes, like a soldier sighting down a gun. There was danger in the man's stance and the set of his boots. Danger in the leather armor he wore. And danger in that brilliant blue eye. When the scarred man spoke, addressing the headmaster, his voice was edged. I suppose you think this room is secure. There are only friends here. The man's head jerked toward Harry. That includes him. If Harry Potter is not our friend, then we are all certainly doomed. So we may as well assume that he is. The man's wand stayed level, not quite pointing at Harry. Boy, almost drew on me just then. Eh, Harry said. He noticed that his hand was still tightly holding his wand, and consciously relaxed his hand and dropped it back to his side. 
Sorry about that. You looked a bit... combat-ready. The scarred man's hand moved slightly away from where it had almost pointed at Harry, though it didn't lower, and the man let out a short bark of laughter. Constant vigilance, he lad. It's not paranoia if they really are out to get you, Harry recited the proverb. The man turned fully toward Harry, and insofar as Harry could read any expression on the scarred face, the man now looked interested. Dumbledore's eyes had regained some of the brilliant twinkle that they'd had before the Askban breakout, a smile beneath his silver mustache as though that smile had never left. Harry, this is Alistair Moody, called also Mad-Eye, who will command the Order of the Phoenix after me. If anything should happen to me, that is. Alistair, this is Harry Potter. I have every hope the two of you shall get along fantastically. I've heard a good deal about you, boy. His one dark, natural eye stayed fixed on Harry, while the point of brilliant blue spun frantically, seeming to rotate all the way around within its socket. Not all of it good. Heard they're calling you the Dementor Spooker in the department. After some consideration, Harry decided to reply with a knowing smile. How'd you pull off that one, boy? Now his blue eye was fixed on Harry as well. I had a little chat with one of the Aurors who escorted the Dementor there from Azkaban. Beth Martin said it came straight from the pit, and no one gave it any special instructions along the way. Of course, she could be lying. There wasn't any sneaky trick to that one. I just did it the hard way. Of course, I could also be lying. Dumbledore was leaning back in his chair, chuckling in the background, like he was just another device in the headmaster's office, and that was the sound he made. The scarred man turned back to face the headmaster, though his wand stayed pointed low and in Harry's general direction. When he spoke, his voice was gruff and businesslike. I have a lead on a recent host of Voldies. You're certain his shade is in Hogwarts now? Not certain, Dumbledore began. Say what? Harry interrupted. After having nearly concluded that the Dark Lord didn't exist, it was a shock to hear of it being discussed that matter-of-factly. Voldy's host, the one he possessed before he took over Granger. If the tales speak true... There is some device of power which binds Voldemort's shade to this world, and by that means he may bargain with a host for possession of their body, conferring on them some portion of his power and his pride. So the obvious question is who gained too much power too quickly, and it turns out there's the fellow who's gone and banished the abandoned banshee staked an entire rogue vampire clan in Asia, tracked down the Woggle Woggle werewolf, and exterminated a pack of ghouls using a tea strainer. And he's milking it for all it's worth. There's been talk of an order of Merlin. Seems to have turned into a charmer and a politician, not just a powerful wizard. Dear me, are you certain that he is not relying on his own skills? Checked his grades. Record shows Gilderoy Lockhart received a troll in his defense owls. Didn't bother with the newt, just a sort of sucker to take the deal Volley was offering. The blue eye whirled crazily within its socket. Unless you remember Lockhart as a student, and think he had enough potential to do all that by himself. 
No, said Professor McGonagall. She frowned. Not a chance, I should say. I fear I must agree, Dumbledore said with an undertone of pain. Ah, Gilderoy, you poor fool. End second part of chapter 86. Thank you to the following people. Malai Moody, James. Dumbledore, Drake Walker. Minerva McGonagall, read by Autumn Rachel Dryden. Severus Snape by Brian Jones. Lavender Brown by Paige Smith. Dean Thomas, David Liu. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. If you would like to learn more about the art of rationality, please visit lesswrong.com, an online community of aspiring rationalists founded by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. The music used is Catch That Goblin by Skaven. Thank you for listening, and come back next week for the third part of Chapter 86, Multiple Hypothesis Testing. 